Well, good evening, Grace Bible Church of Hollister. I go to Grace Community Church of Sun Valley, and I just spoke in uh, Alaska last month at Grace Anchorage, and uh, Grace is everywhere, and I'm glad for that, and I'm glad to be here with you tonight. Um, Yeah, I do have the uh, privilege of serving at Grace Community Church, and uh, John MacArthur is not only my pastor, he's the president of the university, the master's university where I serve. I'm the campus pastor there. I served for 27 years in the city of Birmingham, Alabama as a pastor at a local church. Um, My wife and son struggle with Lyme disease, and uh, that's what moved us to California. Uh, I served on the board of the Master's College and Seminary for some 15 years, and uh, on one trip to Southern California, I was able to bring them with me, and uh, they got off the plane at LAX, and uh, they were noticeably more energized and uh, more capable of doing things. They were more interested in doing things, and that three-day period during the board meeting time was really a revelation in terms of how much warm, dry air is helpful when you struggle with... um, chronic illness, especially Lyme. And uh, Birmingham, Alabama has warm air, but it is not dry. It is humid and heavy, and uh, warm, dry air is just easier. It's not not healing, but it's life-giving. So that's what prompted the transition from the church I love to Southern California, which you may not know this, but Los Angeles has 184 perfect days. Um, that's 60 to 80 degrees, low humidity. Uh, San Diego's number two in the nation. LA's number one. You wouldn't think that. I wouldn't have. Um, but it's true. Alabama, Birmingham, 47 perfect days. <laughs> so I don't know what Hollister is, but I suspect it's a lot closer to Los Angeles in terms of uh, perfect weather. Um, so we're there. Uh, I transitioned to become the campus pastor at uh, Masters. Uh, I'm the first of my kind. Um, there has never been a campus pastor there. Let me tell you just briefly what I do. I, um, I'm a department of one. I have no authority and no boundaries. Uh, I have opportunity to minister to students and staff and faculty and administration. My role is to give shepherding leadership to people who do have authority. Just partner with uh, a lot of men and women who unite together to promote Christ in young people. Um, College age is probably the most significant defining season in a young person's life. Because they leave home, they leave the uh, umbrella safety influence of a local church or a family, and they are going to establish their own convictions. Uh, convictions have been sown in them, but those, those convictions will become their own. And uh, what we do where I have the honor of serving is we support convictions that Christian moms and dads sow into their children local churches sow into their young people, and we seek to establish those convictions so that freestanding moral agents, young men and women who are going to decide and define for themselves what they believe, are supported in biblical convictions. We are a truth-based institution. Everything we do, whatever discipline, whatever educational area is governed and guided by the truth. And the men and women who serve there, me included, are there not... uh, primarily for the privilege of being involved in education, but for the joy and privilege and honor of investing in young people who we want to become like Christ. And so I, uh, I have the privilege of doing that. I uh, love what I do. If John found out how good it is what I do, he would be wanting to do it too. Uh, every pastor wants to do what I do because I shepherd and pastor and I'm responsible for nothing. I just do what I do, and I'm grateful for that. I've been married 36 years. Um, I've pastored a church for over 30 years. Um, I've married a lot of folks. I've coached a lot of folks before marriage and after. And I just want to begin tonight by complimenting you on investing in the most important relationship you have apart from your vertical relationship with God. There's no greater gift you've been given beyond your salvation than the gift of your marriage. It is the first and most important human relationship. 
It trumps children. It trumps parenting. It is the centerpiece of everything human. You have a relationship with God, but there's a relationship that God himself does not choose to provide, which is why he created woman for man. And so this relationship matters. Most people don't invest in it. They get married. They may do premarital counseling. But somehow, once you get married, you don't seem to invest as much as you do in other things. And I just want to compliment you on investing time. Uh, I know there's competing interests. I I know, I'm sure, that you have lots of options this weekend. Um, But I want to compliment and commend you for investing in your marriage. Every couple I have the honor of coaching, I, I tell them, I said, listen... This is the most important human relationship you will have. The gift that you find in one another is the greatest gift you will receive apart from your salvation. Invest in this the rest of your life. You'll be glad you did. It'll be the treasure of your life. It'll be the greatest loss of your life. So this is a quality investment, and I hope that you'll be benefited. And uh, I'm grateful to be here with you, and I'd like to share with you out of Genesis chapter 2. So if you'll turn there, and just a comment about my wife. She would love to be here um, with the illness. We never quite know what she's going to be able to do because we, uh, my 22-year-old son lives with us. He has been sick since he was 11 and he's essentially disabled, and uh, sometimes he just needs more care than other times, and so last night he asked her if she would remain behind, and if you're a parent, you understand parenting and being a mother trumps being a uh, ministry tool, um, at least as we see it, so that's why she's not here. I did see that uh, she was going to speak on what she wished she knew, uh, I'm glad it wasn't what she wished her husband knew. <laughs> uh, and, and, and if it's okay, maybe we can just do the session I was going to do, Breakout-wise, with all of you, because I think it would be applicable to all of you. Um, but she does regret not being here, and I regret that she's not here, because we've been looking forward to this weekend with you. All right, so let me talk a little bit about where we're going. I'm going to call this a... Uh, Prescription for a life-giving biblical marriage. This is maximized marriage. This is marriage from God's vantage point. Marriage is the sacred arena of man's purest and fullest expression of human love. There is no other human context relationship that trumps this one. This one is at the apex of what human beings were were meant to experience. The marriage relationship is meant to reflect the intimacy that the Godhead reflects, uh, the love of Christ for his church. It is meant to be a picture of that. This is to give you a taste of heaven. And you know, because you live in the same world I do, that often marriage isn't that. It is not life-giving. It's heartbreaking. It's frustrating instead of fulfilling. But that's not because the design is bad. It's because we live in a fallen world and often we're not equipped in order to know what to do and to have the assets necessary with which to do it. Marriage requires an installment every day from heaven because marriage is about giving, not getting. The key to marriage is not so much finding the right person, it is being the right person. And to be the right person as a godly husband or as a Christian wife, it requires assets you don't have naturally. I was with a couple today who I'm coaching, and I reminded him of what I've said to him before. Marriage is on the cash basis. You've got to go to the divine ATM every day to get assets you don't have so you can give what is needed. You need what only God gives. But marriage is not busted in terms of its design. It works. We just have to work at it God's way. And so what I want to do with you this weekend, the time that we have together, I want to make some installments biblically. I want to lay a foundation biblically because most Christians really don't understand the foundation of marriage. Why and what. And that matters. Because you need to know what you're aiming at and what facilitates what you long for. You're built for something. 
And in order to experience it, you have to know what you're built for, what you need, what you're designed for intrinsically. And secondly, what is the, what is the context? What is the environment that is going to allow you to experience what God called good? That's what we're going to begin with. And I'm going to say that the first installment on a prescription for a healthy home, a biblical and life-giving marriage, begins with a big dose of perspective. And then we're going to work through key installments, priorities. Uh, I'm going to call them pills because of the idea of prescription. A big dose of perspective. Then we're going to talk about the priority pill, the security pill, and the harmony pill. And you'll see how that fleshes out of this passage. If I were going to entitle my whole weekend, this is what I wish I would have known. This is what I want all of you to know. Because you can have, no matter where you are in your marriage, you may be brand new. You may have been married a long time. Wherever you are, you can take advantage of what God has to communicate to you this weekend. You can be different. Your marriage can be what it is meant to be. You know, James 1 Verse 22 says, prove yourselves doers of the word, the Bible, the truth of God's word, and not merely hearers. I don't know if you know this, but the word hearer is someone who would audit a class. It is a proactive listener. A hearer in biblical language in the book of James is someone who wanted to learn, took notes to learn. They just didn't have to take the test. The Bible says, if you just take notes, if you just learn things, but you're not committed to doing the things you learn, James goes on to say, you deceive yourselves. The word deceive is logizomai, which is rational, and a preposition para. Para is alongside of what's rational, which means it's not inside what's rational. It's irrational. We would say it's insane. You're out of reason. To be a hearer only, a note taker who's learning things and is glad they are here. But to not be a doer is irrational for a biblical Christian. It's insane. Because this is not about learning new stuff. This is about living in new ways. Can you say amen to that? Be doers. Christians know a lot. We know more than any Christian culture in history. The goal isn't just knowing. The goal is taking what we know and living it. So I'll ask you tomorrow, what's going to be different next week? Because we've had this weekend together. Because if there's not something different, we're irrational. Because Christian people want to apply what they learn. That's my hope for you. All right, Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to call this the Magna Carta of marriage. This is the book of origins. This is what you have to get in order to get what God designed and desired. Now there's a verse in the section we're going to read that is the marriage verse. It's the Magna Carta of marriage. It's one time in the Old Testament, three times in the New. Once before man fell, three times after, these words are quoted. Jesus twice, the Apostle Paul once. The foundation of marriage is in Genesis 2. The why and the what of marriage is found here. This is the origin. This is the way God designed it. Marriage is not a cultural thing. It's not a social thing. It's not a man-made thing. It is a God-instituted thing. This is what He designed. This is what He said was necessary. The creator of everything and the understander of everything said, This is good. And you need to understand the why of it and the what of it. And that's found in this section. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. Now let's just pause there for a second. You know chapter 1, everything's made that was going to be made. Six days of creation, really. 
Man and woman created on the sixth day. Chapter one ends by God saying it's all good. It's all very good. So chapter one is the finishing of creation. Chapter two communicates that God wants to step back from his creation, not because he's tired. He wants to enjoy what he has made. He rested. Plus, he wanted to institute a life rhythm for all of creation. A day of rest. A day to reflect, recover, and enjoy. A day to worship. A day to appreciate. Chapter 1 ends with all of creation finished. Chapter 2 is a look at the apex of creation, the man and the woman, day 6. So chapter 2 is kind of zeroing in on the apex of creation. So when God says it's all good at the end of chapter 1, that's after the woman was created. Chapter 2 is a reflection on why he created the woman. So when it says in verse 18, the Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. Obviously, this is before she was created. And they were created together on day 6. Let us make man in our image. And God made woman and man on day 6. This is day 6. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. He shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Question, which verse is the marriage verse? Which verse is repeated three times in the New Testament, twice by Jesus, Mark chapter 10, Matthew chapter 19, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, and the longest treatise on the subject of marriage in the New Testament. Which is the marriage verse? You tell me, which number? Verse 24. Verse 24 is the marriage verse. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What are the first three words? Or the first words, I should say, because I know some of your translations will read different. I'm using the New American Standard translation. What are the first words of verse 24? For this cause, or therefore, some of your Bibles say. For this reason. Some of your Bibles will say. So marriage is in verse 24. We're going to unpack it. There's three Hebrew verbs there. They constitute marriage. The what? I want to start tonight with a dose of perspective for you. And it's bound up in the three words for this cause. For what cause? Why did God institute marriage? What's the cause? Well, this is a paragraph. The paragraph begins in verse 18, and the cause is illuminated or exposed there. The cause is to solve a problem. The problem that marriage is meant to solve is the aloneness problem. God said it is not good for man to be alone. Now, the word alone means alone, and yet God was there. And yet, all of creation but the woman was there. And yet, God says, though he can do anything, there's something he doesn't choose to do, and there's something nature cannot do. Otherwise, the man whom God created in a perfect world with God in attendance and with creation fully finished, absent the woman, it was not good for man to be alone. There was something absent. And God with infinite perspective, infinite diagnosing capacity, infinite ability, 
No lack of resource, no lack of research and development, no lack of anything. Every asset available to him said that to solve man's aloneness problem, I'm going to make a helper suitable. I'm going to make a help meet if it's the King James Version. Two Hebrew words describing what man needed and what a woman is. Two words which describe what a man needs and what a woman is designed to fulfill. If you don't understand what marriage is for, you don't understand what you're aiming at. You don't know the goal. The goal of God in marriage is to solve an aloneness problem. And the aloneness problem which God exposes and communicates, diagnoses, if you will, is going to be solved with a custom-made solution he's going to call a helper suitable, a help me. Now, gentlemen, I want you to understand this is what you need that God does not intend to supply nor will you find a solution anywhere else in the world, even if it were a perfect world. God says, Adam, man, you need a helper. A helper is a practical partner. The Hebrew word means somebody who makes up that which is lacking. Eighty plus times it's used of military help when a general or a commander was facing an army and he needed assistance, practical support in order to accomplish the goal. This has to do with a practical helper who makes up what is lacking. It is not a practical helper lesser. It's not a glorified assistant. It's not like a secretary. David said, I look up in the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. God's the helper, but he's not lesser, right? The word has nothing to do with rank or station. It has to do with function. Help for what? Help for the purpose for which God designed the man. Acts says that David pillowed his head for the last time after he accomplished the work that God had given him to do. Every man has been given a purposed mission by the God who created him. You as a man have unique gifts and capacities, talents and abilities, sovereignly placed in order to accomplish something that will honor God and advance the good of men. You are destined for something. In order for that destined reality to occur, there needs to be help and support. For the mission for which you were created. You were designed for God's glory for a purpose. That purpose cannot be fulfilled without a helper. A practical partner. Who will provide what you lack. Because every man is inadequate for the purpose for which he's been created. By way of mission and design unless he has a helper to make up what he lacks. Ladies, you are a practical partner given to your husband in order to accomplish a mission greater than you both. You are designed by God to help a man accomplish what otherwise will not get accomplished. You are not lesser. You are functionally critical. You see this concept when Jethro, the father-in-law, the uh, father-in-law of Moses, came to him and said, listen, these million plus people that need judged and led, they're too big for you. You're going to wear yourself out. Appoint for yourselves helpers, judges, who will judge for you. They will judge lesser numbers, and then certain cases you will need to judge. Because Moses, you can't do this job of leading and judging these people, your divine mission, absent support and help. That's the concept, gentlemen. The concept is you were built for something, 
She's essential to that something. It is not good for man to be alone because of the work for him to do that he cannot do without a helper. That God does not intend to be in himself. Number two, I'm going to create a helper suitable. The word suitable means intimate companion. Literally, the Hebrew words means someone who fits. Some of your Bibles, the reason it says suitable is it's a compliment. It's like you, but not you. Male-female is about fitting together, complementing each other. It's translated in the book of Proverbs as intimate companion. This is relational, not functional. This is friendship, companionship. God said it is not good for man to be alone. What he needs is a companion. For this cause is to deal with an aloneness problem of limited function and necessary relation. It's to address loneliness and productivity, activity. So marriage is purposed to supply something that's related to that problem for this cause. And so God is going to create a helper companion and a corresponding companion. Someone with whom you can have a close bond, a unique, one-of-a-kind, intimate relationship. She is different, she complements, and she's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, you're alone. Inadequate to accomplish the mission. Limited in terms of intimate relationship. Lonely. You know that the number one problem in our culture, according to many sociologists, is isolation and aloneness? You can be in a crowd. You can be in this room with a bunch of people and feel alone. Because it's not just being in a room with a lot of people. It's not just being with somebody. It's being connected to somebody in such an intimate way that you're soul to soul, heart to heart. Marriage is meant to solve an intimacy, aloneness problem. God wants us to recognize as we begin our journey out of the book of origins this weekend of what marriage is meant to do. And it begins by an understanding that it, it, the cause of marriage is to solve an aloneness problem. Look back at Genesis chapter 2. Oh, by the way, does any, God, any chance God was wrong about his diagnosis? No chance. Any chance God messed up the solution? It's not like God had a resource problem. He could have come back with three buddies and a bass boat. <laughs> I served in the state of Alabama. You'd think God came back with a bunch of buddies and a hunting club membership. Or a 65-inch screen, surround sound, and a satellite dish tuned to ESPN. There are a lot of things that guys do, me included, that would represent a misunderstanding about what is most important. And what God came back with was not a bunch of buddies. Came back with one woman he called a helper suitable. The perfect solution to the aloneness problem is the perfect person whom God custom builds. He calls her a practical partner, an intimate companion. This is where you get the concept of soulmate, somebody who fits me. Look at verses 19 and 20, and I want to punctuate this thought. And by the way, men, let me just say this to you. Here's a critical perspective that will maximize your marriage. Here's a dose of perspective. You need to recognize what you need, what she is, and why God gave her to you. You need to understand that you do need a practical partner, someone who makes up what you're lacking for the mission for which you were made. You do need to know that you need an intimate companion, someone with whom you're able to share your life. That's necessary, not optional. Unless there's the rare exception that you were called to signal singleness, and I'm not thinking we have any singles here that we have to talk to about that, but unless you're that which is rare, 
You need this, and this is what God has provided to meet that need. Verses 19 and 20. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. Question. Why are we naming the animals after we find out we have a problem and what the solution should be? Why do you think those verses are in there? Say it again. To find, well, that's true. That is part of man's mission. He's doing his mission. Perfect. Who knew there was a problem in verse 18? God did. Who knows he has a problem at the end of verse 20? Adam. The naming exercise was not just an expression of his purpose and mission, because he had dominion over the, the kingdom of the animals. It was to show Adam that in a perfect world, there was no solution. For his situation. I believe it was designed to create a hunger that was absolutely necessary in order to advance a priority and a passion and a perspective, which is there is nothing in this world that'll meet the need that I have. Not even a perfect world. Man's best friend? No. I was listening coming up from Los Angeles today. They were talking about people needing counsel, grief counseling when they lose a pet. And they were actually talking, it was just really interesting, about two counselors talking about how you coach people how to deal with the loss of a pet because it's like a family member. Well, I I do relate to that. We have uh, three dogs and a cat. We have four birds, two fish. We like animals. In a perfect world, as good as the animals can be, and maybe they had capacities that animals today do not have, there was nothing for Adam. There is nothing in the world. Gentlemen, I want you to get this thought in your mind because this is a marriage perspective. There's nothing in the world, even a perfect world, that'll meet the intrinsic needs as I have a man to advance the mission for which I was created, or to provide soulish intimacy which I need and desire, except one custom-built solution. One. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's only one, if it's one of a kind, it's really rare, and it's irreplaceable, that makes that precious. And part of the marriage perspective that I want to promote tonight is the recognition that she's rare, she's one of a kind, and she's to be treated as precious. And ladies, I will say this to you. If you're built for your husband, husband custom-made, which you are if you're married, you are one of a kind. You are built for him. Just like Eve was built for Adam. You're unique. You're one of a kind. You're made by God. You're provided for a purpose, and that purpose is irreplaceable. Husbands, care for her like she's precious. Prioritize her like she's precious. Recognize that she's what you need and that she's rare. That's what Adam was learning. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. I think that's an important verse to understand, that she was made out of something core to him. The rib, the Hebrew word, has to do with a thoracic, something in this region, close to the heart. I think that's symbolic and central to the idea that essential and central to the man was the means by which God created her. Look, he formed man out of the dust of the earth. But he fashioned the woman, different word, 
from the rib which he had taken. Man was formed, verse 22, she was fashioned. Now, if you don't have the New American Standard, you don't get fashioned. But you should have gotten fashioned. Some of your Bibles will say the Lord God made. It's fair to say made. It just doesn't say enough. The word made is used of art. It's used of craftsmanship. It's used of God's artful creation of the universe. It's fashioning the universe. In the book of Amos, it's used of God fashioning the glories of the heavens. It's used of craftsmen in the Old Testament who were skilled craftsmen to make the the decorum and the, the, the clothing and the instruments for the priest or to craft the articles and instruments in the furniture of the tabernacle or the temple. Craftsmanship. This word is art and fashion. Here's the way I'd like you to see it. Custom made. Now listen, there's a difference between a suit off the rack at Sears. Do you have a Sears around here? They're closing everywhere. (laughs) There's a difference between a suit off the rack and a tailor-made suit. There's a difference between a spec house and one of these developments, you know, where every fifth one looks the same as the other ones, and a custom-made house. This is not off the rack. This is fashioned and tailor-made. God custom-made her for him. She is art in his eyes. She's custom-made, and she's unique for you. My wife's name is Karen. She's a twin. Sharon and Karen. That's why her name is K-A-R-O-N, John. Because she's two of a kind, but she's not the same as Sharon. She's unique, even though she's a twin. She's unique and different, and she's unique and different and custom-made for me because she was gifted to me by God, represented by her father who walked her down the aisle. That's what you see in verse 22 when it says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had made, custom made, art, taken from the man, core to him, essential to him, and brought her to him. The word brought is an interesting Hebrew word also. It's the Hebrew word bow. It means to unveil. It's like an artist unveiling a work of art. If you've ever been to a gallery and an artist is unveiling their latest thing or some inventor is showing off a new car, they're about to have the L.A. car show not too long from now, there'll be a reveal at the car show. Just like Apple reveals their new thing or Samsung reveals their new thing, pomp and circumstance, a car will be revealed, it'll be under uh, uh, some kind of cloth, the lights will come on, the cloth will go away, that's unveil. It's the unveiling of a work of art, which is why traditionally, I don't know if you do it here, and I, I don't see it very often in the weddings that I do, where brides come down the aisle with a veil. First of all, when the, when the bride comes to the back of the room with her father, it represents this moment where she is being brought to the man. The father represents God, just like the pastor does, because it's God who makes the union, and it's the father who does the presentation. And this is the father presenting the bride, the woman, to the man. He will walk her down the aisle. Traditionally, there used to be an unveiling. Remember that? A veil would be lifted. That's this. I I, I don't want to use too much sanctified imagination, but I'm going to argue that when God brought her to the man, it wasn't walking side by side. I have the vision where she's behind him and he steps back and says, look at this. Because the unveiling is a formal presentation. There is pomp and circumstance, which is why everybody stands when the bride walks the aisle. It's why the music changes. It's when When the father is bringing the bride to the front, it is a picture of this moment. This is God 
with a custom-made solution, one of a kind, nowhere else in the world, presenting her to him and unveiling his latest work of art. To which the man responds, now, the Hebrew word is emphatic at the front of verse 23, now, having seen this option, now remember he's seen every other option, now, the way we would do it, now we're talking. That's not hyperbole. That's the flavor and the nuance, the force of that statement. Now, this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh, which means she is a compliment to me. I relate to her. Now watch this. She shall be called woman, Isha. That's the Hebrew word because she was taken out of man, Ish. Isha and Ish. Do you hear the similarity? What he is saying is, I want her to have a name that identifies with my name. Because I'm agreeing with God that what I didn't have, I now have. What the world couldn't provide, she is. She was made for me, and I affirm that. I'm not only saying that, I want her to be identified with me, which is why the woman gets the man's name. It's the man saying, I agree with God that what she is is a gift from God given to complete me and make me otherwise what I wouldn't be to provide a relationship that nothing in the world can provide, not even God, not because he couldn't, but because he doesn't. I'm going to argue that if you don't get that, you don't get marriage. Because until you value what the woman is to the man until the woman understands how essential she is to his life and function, priorities can't be in place. This is the most important thing humanly that'll ever happen to you. And it is a gift of God. It is a custom made by God's solution represented in that father that unveiling is the representing of God's joy at showing off his work of art. I believe this. God proudly presented her and man enthusiastically received her. And he said, I want her to have my name. I want her to be identified with me. She was made for me. If you understand that, would you say amen? What that means She's precious, she's rare, and this relationship is like no other. If you want to have a maximized marriage, you need to recognize who she is and what you need if you're a man. You need to recognize she's rare, one of a kind, and to be treated as precious. You need to recognize she is art, custom made and unique for you. By the way, the word in chapter 2, verse 7, it says God formed man out of the dust of the earth. It means to shape like a mud man. So guys, we're mud men. She's custom made. There is a difference. And you're, you ought to be good with that difference. <laughs> Recognize that the artist is proud of her. And you should be too. Recognize that you are God's finishing partner. The art that he has created is not finished. That's what husbands do. A father starts that work. He should. When a father gives a daughter to a man, he's entrusting a woman to be finished, to be presented without spot or wrinkle. That's Ephesians 5. A husband is a partner with heaven, just like the father was a partner with heaven. A father receives the gift of a daughter. He's to shape her, prepare her for the man who will finish her. I have a 30-year-old daughter. I had the privilege of marrying my son-in-law and daughter in, at our home in Birmingham. We had a little horse farm. My wife loves horses, and so does my daughter. We are horse people. We're animal people, obviously. And she got married in the uh, pasture behind our barn, and 
We met in the home, which I meet with every husband-to-be before I marry them, and we pray together, and I try to give perspective. This is the first time I've given perspective that included a father to a son-in-law about to receive the gift of his daughter. And I said to my son-in-law, Jonathan, I said, Jonathan, I want you to know this. I couldn't be prouder, and I couldn't be more excited. You're a better man to finish the work that I began. You're the person God is entrusting this work to. My work's done. I'll support your work, but my work is done. I'm giving her to you. She's leaving me. She's entrusted to you. Finish the work. You're a better man than I am for that purpose. That's what every husband is for some father. You're the finisher of a work that he hasn't completed. And if he's not going to done a good job of investing, you have a lot of work to finish. You have a responsibility to complete, to affirm, to the end that she is what she was built to be. Recognize why she bears your name. She bears your name because you're saying, I get it, and I want everyone in the world to know it. God proudly presents her. Man enthusiastically receives her. Husband to husband, act like that. That's what God intended. That's what Adam did. And that's what we should do if we get it. And then finally, verse 24. So let's go back to where we started for this cause. For what cause? Solve the aloneness problem. Well, hold it. I thought we had the aloneness problem solved. We got a custom-built solution. God's glad. Adam's glad. We're good. No, we're not good. Because the solution is a two-part solution. It's the right person. Listen to this. In the right place. Otherwise they could just live together in the Garden of Eden. This is leaving, cleaving, and uniting. It's a two-part solution. Marriage is the second part. It's finding the right person and providing the right place where that person can become what they are supposed to be. Recognize that marriage is a two-part solution. The right person in the right place. Marriage is the right place where every good intention of God when he created the woman and gifted her to the man will be fulfilled. The degree to which you do verse 24 is the degree to which you will experience what God intended when he gifted us with marriage. There are three Hebrew verbs in verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. What does that involve? There are three pillars in verse 24 that constitute a marriage. I tell couples I marry, the degree to which you establish a leave, cleave, and become one, a leave, cleave, and unite relationship is the degree to which you'll experience what a perfect God intended when he gave the gift of marriage. When he custom made her and gifted her to you, that reality that you long for, she was built for, will be tasted, experienced when you build a marriage. You get one when you declare yourselves husband and wife or when someone declares you husband and wife, when you commit by vows a covenant relationship. You get a marriage, but you build one. And building a marriage is focused on leaving, cleaving, and uniting. And that results in naked, unashamed. If you want to boil those words down, that's intimacy. And the goal of everything is relational. And the goal of relationship is intimacy. It is soul to soul, it is heart to heart, unashamed, fully exposed, fully vulnerable. Marriage is the place where two people can be vulnerable and secure. Where they're free to love and to be loved. 
The committed union of a man and woman in heart, soul, mind, and body is the divine means to satisfy a need that otherwise will never be satisfied. Marriage is God's gift. And marriage is essential for you to become and taste what God intended when he made you for his glory and to bless you with immeasurable good. Can you say amen to that? I know that's, you might not hear that on a news channel, but you're going to read that in your Bible. And what we're going to do the next, tomorrow, the three times we're together, I want to unpack what a marriage is based on those three Hebrew verbs so you know what you're building, what it requires. Well, why leave? What do you mean cleave or hold fast? Because nobody uses the word cleave. Anybody use cleave lately? Yeah, me neither. So... That's a word you have to understand. And then the two shall become one flesh. What does that mean? Is that physical union? Is that what that means? So we'll talk about that tomorrow because that's the context. The three pillars upon which marriage is built. That's the context, the right place that allows you to taste the purpose for which God gave the woman to the man. Okay, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the treasure of your word. Thank you for the opportunity to teach it. It's my prayer tonight that we will raise the stakes of value and priority that is represented in this room, a man and a woman, united by marriage, a marriage purpose to satisfy a need that otherwise will never be satisfied. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that there will be a willingness and a desire and a longing to align our thinking and our practice to the high priority that is represented in our home. I pray for every husband. I pray that they would recognize the rare, rich, fashioned by God gift that their wife is made in a way unique to accomplish a person no other person can accomplish, to share soulish unity that is rich and full, and that they are precious beyond words. I pray that value would elevate and priorities would adjust in recognition of that value. And I pray that men and women would learn the priorities that allow them to experience a life-giving relationship. Thank you for the gift of marriage. Help us to live it and see it the way you see it and want us to live it. To that end, I ask it in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.